HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Visit Ithaca. Ithaca, New York boasts an authentic craft beverage experience, tasty farm-to-table culinary adventures, and scenic outdoor recreation among 150 waterfalls. Plan your trip today with help from visitithaca.com. Hey, this is Hannah, HRN's program manager. It's HRN's 10th anniversary and now our summer fun drive. So show your support for independent, revolutionary, entertaining food radio by becoming a monthly recurring donor. HRN is powered by a passionate community of thoughtful eaters, and we need each and every one of you to show your support so that we can keep bringing you your favorite food podcasts. It takes a village, and every dollar donated, every listener tuning in is essential to our continued success. So set up a donation for $10 every month. You'll show us that you want to be a part of a bright future for HRN. And you'll get one of our brand new limited edition Pizza Pocket t-shirts. So snag your new favorite tea and show us some love. All for the price of about two fancy lattes each month. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate today. And thank you. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. My name is Katie Kiefer, and today we're going to talk about pea cycling uh, with the co-founder and research director, Abraham Noe Hayes, who works with something called the Rich Earth Institute. Um, And Abraham has been working with dry sanitation systems since 1990. He holds a BA in human ecology with concentrations in agroecology and compost science, from the College of the Atlantic, where his interest in recycling human manure led to an internship at Woods End Research Laboratory and his thesis project, an experiment in thermophilic composting. He has operated full circle compost consulting since 2001, providing complete design, manufacture, and maintenance services to individuals and institutions with dry toilet systems. And he is also the eco sanitation expert for Sustainable Harvest International which he has helped to initiate urine diversion projects in Nicaragua, Honduras, Panama, and Belize. In addition to hands-on dry sanitation work, Abraham gives lectures and leads workshops at conferences and schools and writes articles on the topic. In other words, you, my friend, are a fecal engineer. I've never met one before. (laughs) 
<laughs> wow, I, I didn't know that's what I was, but I'll I'll accept that. Well, title, that's uh, what it is. Right. I mean, you've got you've got the whole thing taped out. I love. I mean, we're gonna really we're gonna go to town on this because I mean, it's amazing to me. I think because of the ick factor, that people do not look more closely into recycling and pecycling. Um, you know, human waste, which would save so much water. So first, let's start with uh, the Rich Earth Institute. Tell us about the Institute, uh, what you do there, and the kind of work that you're uh, pioneering now with P-cycling. Sure. So the, the most obvious thing that we do here at the Rich Earth Institute is we operate the nation's first community-scale urine recycling program. So we have uh, hundreds of people who either have specialized toilets in their homes or, or portable urinal devices, and, um, and their urine goes into those toilets, and then we collect the urine and uh, process it into fertilizer that we then distribute to local farms. And mm-hmm. the whole point of that is that, that urine is full of nutrients, plant nutrients, nitrogen, potassium, phosphorus, and other elements. And if we flush them down the toilet and through the sewer plant into the river or the lake or the ocean, then they, those nutrients are pollution. And they cause algae to grow where it shouldn't grow. It kills fish and is very damaging. But if we can get those plant nutrients from the urine into agriculture, then they feed plants. And we don't have to use um, mineral fertilizers and synthetic fertilizers. We can use the nutrients from the urine instead. So it's a win-win situation. Stop pollution and create something beneficial for agriculture. Yeah. I mean, it, it makes so much sense to me. I, I can't believe that nobody's done it before. So so why why is this new? Like, have, people have been using pee for years. I can remember, like, seeing my sister's dog would pee all over the lawn, and you could see, like, every spot where Allie peed was much greener, brighter grass. So <laughs> so clearly, yeah. you know, yeah. if nothing I mean, new, why, why haven't we been new. doing this all along? I don't understand. Well, some people have, um, and, th- and that exists in... in um, agriculture through the millennia. It's not a new practice at all. Um, And then it turns out a lot of people do it today. And I didn't know that before I got involved in this program. But um, Uh now that we are the urine recycling people, everyone has a story to tell us about their their (laughs) grandmother who used to do this or how they do this or how how they, you know, they are wondering about it and is it crazy or not? And, and, you know, how does it all work? And, uh, and so it's actually, it's actually one of those things where where a lot more, more people do urine recycling or use urine in their gardens than I ever expected. And a lot more people are open to the idea than I expected. Because in our research, one of the things that we, we figured would be a big hurdle was, okay, it's a good idea, practically speaking, but no one's going to want to do it. And then it turned out that people do want to do it. They just don't think other people, <clears throat> other people will want to do it. And so it's this funny thing where, where in general, uh, people are more open to it themselves than they imagine other people would be. And that's been the biggest, um, the biggest concern people have, I think, is just what will other people think? Yes, right. I was just going to say, it's like a social, you know, it's a social no-no because, I mean, let's face it, we're kind of like a, <clears throat> we're an, we're an excreta phobic society. Like everybody is all freaked out. I mean, we're not supposed to even talk about pee and poop. It's like a no-no. And yet it's, an, it is, as you are demonstrating, an incredibly valuable resource that we could be using to our benefit. So when I was looking at your website, the Rich Earth Institute, um, and Wait, let's back up for a second. What is the Rich Earth Institute? Is this the only project you guys are working on, or is there are there other facets to what is going yeah. on at the Rich Earth Institute? 
Yeah, so, so our, our mission has to do with, with advancing the reuse of human waste as a resource. And so our biggest project right now is this, this urine um, recycling program. Okay. Because urine is, is really the, the low-hanging fruit, so to speak. It's, um, it's where most of the nutrients are. If you think about the solid and liquid fractions of your waste, the pea has 85% of the nitrogen, most of the phosphorus, most of the potassium, and virtually none of the, um, of the pathogens. All the, all the diseases you associate with bad sanitation are intestinal pathogens. So urine is, um, is not, the, not the way those diseases are transmitted. So it was right. easier. It was more, more acceptable to people just in terms of you know, what, what people are more, um, more open to. And also urine, it's easy to pump. It's easy to transport, easy to uh, process and apply. So we started there. But ultimately, our, our vision is, is recycling all the nutrients that leave our bodies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Thank you for that. Um, so looking at your website, I'll go back to this question. I was, I was absolutely, you know, overwhelmed, frankly, by what an uphill battle this is. I mean, aside from the fact that we are a phobic society, right? People are germ phobic. So that's an issue. Mm-hmm. So there's, mm-hmm. but then there's the research part of it. Then there's convincing the consumers to install those urine collection stations. Then there's mm-hmm. building out the infrastructure to make that scalable, meaning, you know, like getting the somebody to come in and pump your urine tank out and take the urine away. And then the processing aspect of it, which I'm going to ask you about in a minute, like, what do you do to process it? And then ultimately, oh, and then the regulatory aspects, like how does this get regulated, if at all? And then finally, how do you sell it into the agricultural sector? Like, how do you convince them? And, you know, we'll talk about the money. in So, so where, where do you start? Where do you feel like the biggest challenge lies at the moment? Like as you start this project? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny. You described it as an uphill battle, but, um, but to me, it's, it felt more like a complicated puzzle because we haven't uh-huh. really been fighting anybody. <laughs> we've, uh, we've only been having to figure out how, like, how to deal with getting urine from point A to point B, things like that. But we've gotten a tremendous amount of support. Convincing people to, to be involved in this project has actually not been very difficult. People come to us and they say, hey, I heard about your project. I would love to do something more useful with my pee, and uh, you know how do I get involved? Right. So, um, so ultimately, in terms of, of how this scales up, I think I think that it comes to do with um, with a question you alluded to there about about the, the value of all this, and um, and really the financial value of all this is the pollution prevention. Because for right, that's cost, what I'm thinking about. It's like who's going to make the money, and uh, yeah. you know that's going to make it go right. I mean, it right, will be right. valuable because obviously fertilizer costs a lot of money now. So this will mm-hmm. be cheaper, right, for farmers? Right. Well, the, the, that side of the equation is significant, but what's much more significant is the pollution prevention side because a farmer can, can buy fertilizer, say nitrogen fertilizer, for less than a dollar a pound for, per pound of nitrogen. But in, if you invest in new wastewater treatment infrastructure to remove uh. nitrogen from sewage, it can cost hundreds of dollars per pound to remove that yes. nitrogen for every pound of nitrogen. So it literally costs hundreds of times more to do the pollution prevention than it costs to generate those fertilizers through through other means. So I think that if you're looking at the economic part of it, really it has to be driven by the wastewater sector investing in urine oh. diversion, saying this is a better way to prevent pollution than uh, than alternative methods. It's better if we can keep urine out of the sewer in the first place, and then a, an, a fortunate byproduct of that whole process 
is sustainable fertilizer that can go to farms. Right. But what will drive it right. is the, uh, the wastewater side. Now, Abe, is this, I mean, just to talk about the fertilizer aspect of it for a minute. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, when the, when the pea is essentially broken down or processed into fertilizer, um, however, whatever form that takes, which you're going to tell me about in a second, but does mm-hmm. that then, does this have less implications for runoff? I mean, I, I guess what I'm trying to get out of here is, mm-hmm. you know, like the, I I've done a lot of, uh, programming around water quality and water quality issues that are affected by runoff from agricultural, um, land. And so I'm, I'm wondering, does this have less of an impact than conventional fertilizers would have on what you described earlier, the hypoxia, uh, you know, the, the dead zones in the Gulf and the Chesapeake and, you know, all of the waterways that have been uh, affected by too much fertilizer in, in our agricultural lands. Will this be any different or is it just a more efficient way of creating the fertilizer? Right. Yeah, that's something that, that we want to quantify. We have some research proposals in for that, but we haven't been able to do that work yet. So, mm-hmm. so at this point, what we're saying is, the, the big difference, the big benefit is that we are taking it out of the wastewater stream because yeah. if it goes into the wastewater, it's water pollution, and that's a strike. And then on the farms, if you're applying um, um, mineral fertilizer, some of that will run off. That's a strike against water quality. In, yes. in our equation, we know that we're, we're erasing that, that strike on the, on the water pollution side from the wastewater. We're taking it out of there. And then even if all we do is replace... Um, synthetic fertilizers with urine and and the farm dynamics, even if those stay the same, we still helped the um, the the wastewater side of the equation. What right, I understand that. Yes, out, that makes sense to me. How the fertilizer, uh, yeah. Um, so, but um, let's let's talk a little bit about how you process it, because of course, um, you know, most uh, Americans and probably many people around the world take drugs. For example, I mean, you know, not mm-hmm. like to get high, but I mean that's probably true too. But, but you know um, what I mean? Like, we're I mean, I take tons of different drugs. I mean, I take you know Lexapro for my brain, and I take you know uh, uh, something else for my you know blood sugar, and you know blah blah blah. The birth the people who take birth control. How how do you mm-hmm. process those out of the urine? How, how does that work? Because yeah. you don't obviously want to use that as part of the fertilizer. Like we already have enough of that in in our waterways <laughs> now. Right. Yeah. And that's that's the issue. That's the issue to start with is that, um, that if you do the status quo and you flush urine down the drain into a sewer, then it goes then all the all the drugs that are in that urine, which is a significant part of the drugs that we eat. Uh, those those drugs will go into the sewer through a wastewater mm-hmm. plant, typically in about a day or so. And, um, and most wastewater plants don't have a, a setup particularly to remove those. And so right. a large quantity of those ends up in the waterways. So if we separate yes. the urine out, then we're keeping a large portion of pharmaceuticals from flowing into rivers through the wastewater plants. We have it in the urine. One of our, our first studies that we did with the University of Michigan and the University at Buffalo was to um, analyze the, the pharmaceuticals in the urine and then use that urine to grow crops and see what the crops had and what the soil had, what the water had. And it turned out that we detected all the drugs we were looking for in the urine. The greatest one by far was caffeine. A lot of people take caffeine on a daily basis. Whoa, um, right, of course. Yeah, every, like, you know, who, who doesn't drink coffee or tea? Most people do. And, um, and so, so then we grew crops, and w- they were able to analyze very minute levels of pharmaceuticals um, in the crops and in the soil and in the water. Turned out that again, caffeine was was one of the ones that figured the most prominently. 
also um, acetaminophen, which is Tylenol, was, was detected. Yeah. But the levels, the levels were such that in order to get a single cup of coffee worth of caffeine or a single Tylenol worth of acetaminophen, you would have to eat an entire pound of lettuce every day for 2,000 years from this time. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> it's detectable because their, their methods are so amazing, but it doesn't add up to very much. That said, okay. we're also working on a method using activated charcoal to remove even even those um, those existing levels from um, from the urine before we apply it, because we're not the ones to say whether whether we wanted to have more treatment or not. Um, that's that's really up to regulators or farmers or or the public. Right, right, of course. And what about animal pee? Is there any way of, because uh, I'm thinking about like, you know, concentrated area feeding operations, you know, CAFOs, like there's a yeah. whole, like this would be a game changer for those guys. Um, but I don't know how you would, you know, I can't imagine what the technology would be to collect urine from animals, but still, I mean, that yeah. that would be something that would be kind of a, a cool game changer and a lot less, yeah. I mean, not a lot, but some less drugs in there. Mm-hmm. Is that, well, a, is that feasible on, or not the... feasible? Depends on the on the animal operation. I, I know that drugs are used extensively in some in some um, animal production systems. Yes. But, um, well, I, I'm I'm here in Vermont. The institute's in Vermont, and there are a lot of small farms here that have animals, and that urine goes into the manure and into animal bedding, or directly onto pastures and gets recycled that way. So there's actually a very strong, long tradition in in animal husbandry of the Certainly. animal manure being recycled um, that way. In terms of a confined feeding operation, that that does make waste waste handling is a huge problem for CAFOs, and it's a huge pollution problem. So, um, that's not yeah, an area we've it's like their biggest focused. problem. I mean, you know, as far as yeah. the impact on communities and the environment, it's the fact that they have no right. waste treatment plan. Right. Basically, most of them, yeah. anyway. Yeah. But you know, localized agriculture, I think, is an, is another approach to that, where where rather than confining all the animals and concentrating all the waste. And then trying to deal with the problem, um, you know, I, I guess, I guess what I'm, what I've experienced more and 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 feel is a wonderful approach is, is smaller farms where, where the animals can be living near where their feed is grown so that it can be a direct cycle. Mm-hmm. But but you're right, that is a, it is an unanswered problem right now about but what to do that, with that from animals. Most and, definitely, yeah, I actually I actually focused. bought stock in a company that had like a closed loop wastewater treatment thing. And they still haven't managed to sell this, so I'm not a millionaire yet. But I keep hoping that's right. going to happen, Abe. <laughs> right. Well, good luck. Good luck. You never know. Listen, we're going to take a short break for a sponsor drop, uh, and we'll be right back with Abe Noe Hayes, who's talking about pea cycling, uh, a new way of diverting uh, human urine into agricultural production. Stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by Visit Ithaca. Located in New York's Finger Lakes region, Ithaca boasts an authentic craft beverage experience, tasty farm-to-table culinary adventures, and scenic outdoor recreation. As the saying goes, Ithaca is gorgeous. The city is home to 150 waterfalls and gorges sprinkled through its downtown and sloping hillsides. State parks and acres of natural lands offer outdoor recreation for every level of enthusiast. Come stroll among the cool ravines, scenic hiking trails, and natural vistas. Ithaca is home to Ivy League Cornell University and Ithaca College, 
resulting in an influx of new cultures, new tastes, and new energy every year. There's so much to explore, from art galleries and museums to unique attractions like the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Ithaca sits at the heart of a blossoming heritage and craft cider industry. Some of these delicious ciders can be bought in market, but many of the most unique varieties can only be experienced with a visit to Ithaca and this great cider region. Go to visitithaca.com to get inspired and plan your trip today. Okay, we're back uh, with Abe Noe Hayes from the Rich Earth Institute. This is what doesn't kill you, Food Industry Insights. Um, and we are talking about pea cycling. I just, I mean, the whole thing just kind of made me giggle, but it's actually such a great freaking idea. So if farmers were able to replace uh, traditional, like what what would this mean in terms of their costs, would it be, would it make their lives better? Or as you said earlier in the show, is it really just a question of, of municipalities being able to uh, treat their water with less, for less cost? Is that really where, where this is going to be sold? I guess it's my question, like who's going to buy this? Is it going to be, um, right. is it going to be cities and towns that buy this technology or is it going to be, uh, you know, farms that say, yes, this is what I want to do. I want to buy this product. Yeah, I think the cities and towns or, or the regional environmental districts are going to have to be the ones that make the main investment because they actually have the biggest savings. But I think that what, what is an advantage for the farmers are a few things. Uh, one is that it's a sustainable form of fertilizer and it's produced locally. So any farmer who is, is motivated by, um, by sustainable agriculture will have, have an interest in using that. Um, uh-huh. as a more sustainable option. Another thing is that urine actually has some um, some quality benefits over conventional fertilizers. One of them is that it, it has a lot of trace um, trace elements in it, trace nutrients like um, right. Like you mentioned potassium, nitrogen, for potassium. example. Right, nitrogen, potassium, and phosphorus are the are the big three that that any farmer will will be monitoring and, and applying to match. But then there's all these these other other minerals like, like, well, to name a few, like boron or selenium, or uh, even even um, iron, uh, copper. I'm not actually, I, I, I'm not good at making a list of them right now because that's not my specialty. But the list is long, and it's all uh-huh. these elements that cool. are not found in in conventional fertilizer. And then uh, I was in Sweden recently, looking at some of their urine diverting toilets and agricultural systems that that use them. And the thing that they were stressing is that. They have a lot of um, cadmium in their soils because historically they used phosphorus fertilizer, mined phosphorus fertilizer that had an overabundance of cadmium, which is a toxic metal. And now yeah. they're having to deal with, with those high levels in the soils. And urine is extremely low in heavy metals. We've had that tested many times and it, they barely show up. So uh, it's a very clean source of, of nutrients that you want, but, um, but very few heavy metals that you don't want. How cool. Yeah, the Chinese really need that technology. Um, give us an idea of how much water this would save if everyone if, if everyone started to conserve their pee. Mm-hmm. Well, how much water for a wastewater treatment plant? What, what would be the implications in terms of saving water? Not just I right. guess not even just for a wastewater treatment, but really literally for each, you know, for a household. How many gallons of water do we flush away every day every time we pee? Yeah, it, it does add up. If you have like a, a 1.6 gallon flush toilet, 
and people will, in a ballpark, use the toilet about five times a day. Four of those times are likely for urine. So if you use a urine-diverting toilet or a waterless urinal that, that doesn't need water for flushing, then that works out to 6.4 gallons of water per day per person times 365 is 2,336 gallons of water per, per person. Year. So a couple thousand gallons of water per person per year. Multiply wow. that out by, by a community or a, or a household. It really starts to add up. Um, yes. And another, another volume thing to think about is that, um, that of all the water you send down the drain, less than 1% of that is urine. But that urine that you do send there down the drain contains um, about three quarters of all of the nitrogen pollution that, that your house contributes to the sewer. So it's a, it's a tiny fraction of the flow, but a huge fraction of the nitrogen and also a large fraction of the phosphorus and the potassium. So it's really, if you were to take one, separate one part of wastewater out and save it because, because it had value, absolutely is the urine um, in terms of its strength and its tiny volume. And that's why it's a little bit crazy to send it down the sewer, because if you keep the urine out of the sewer water, it's a, yeah. lot, uh, a lot lower strength. It's easier to treat at the wastewater plant. So this is, this is something that, oh, that um, is not an alternative to a sewer or an alternative to a septic. It's an augmentation, because it, it, makes, it takes the strain off of those other systems, lets them do what mm -hmm. they do well, which is remove solids. And, they, and what they don't do very well is to remove nutrients. So it's a nice division of of those tasks. Right, right. Well, it, you know, I don't know if you followed the uh, the whole um, saga um, in Des Moines, Iowa. There was, there was a wonderful guy now, sadly, uh, uh, departed, but um, Bill Stowe, who actually, because he ran the wastewater treatment facility in Des Moines, um, that was kind of like the, the amount of phosphorus and nitrogen in the water was more than the wastewater treatment plant could treat. And so he ended up mm -hmm. suing these upriver farm counties to try to force them to do more about managing their effluent. And, um, you know, the various, uh, due to the various political uh, machinations of the local government, um, unfortunately, the suit really didn't go anywhere, but it brought attention to this issue. And it is one of national uh, importance, although it doesn't make the New York Times or, or the Washington Post mm -hmm. on a daily basis, but it really should. And I think that, um, you know, trying to get uh, cities to recognize that this would be a cost saver um, as well as a more efficient way of working uh, with, you know, human waste. I mean, it's a heavy lift, but certainly a very worthwhile one, especially in water challenged areas like California or the Southwest. Mm -hmm. what, what kind of politics would be involved for you? I mean, I know we're jumping the gun here, but still, like what kind of political um you know, uh, information would you need to start uh, pushing this forward in terms of uh, having municipalities consider this technology and having uh, state and federal funding go towards it? What, what, what would that entail, do you think? Boy, politics is, is not, not my strong suit. Um, <laughs> you're, you're purely in the theoretical and research end of it, huh? All right. Well, well very, let's applied. Then... very applied as, applied as well. But um but in terms of, of yeah, what are the what are the political realities or, or things required? I guess I guess what's what's required is um, is for so cost savings can can be a hard sell because it's easy if you need to buy something and there's an inexpensive option. It's easy to see that you can buy the inexpensive thing. 
yeah. when you're spending money to save money, I think that that's just a little bit conceptually harder for, for people to, um, to see yeah. and understand, understand that it's real. So I, I guess what, what we're always looking for is where are the first places to roll this out? Where, where's a place where it's clearly in, in this location's best interest to do this? And, um, and who are the decision makers who, um, who can make it happen? And so, so the places that I think um, have the most to save in the very short term are places that, that have a, a nutrient pollution problem. So they've, they've got wastewater with too much nitrogen or too much phosphorus in it, and, and all the options they have for how to fix that problem are too expensive. And urine diversion is a great way to address that problem. So yeah. even though it's a, still a young, a young technology, and it's not since it isn't a mature technology, you don't have all the all the cost. The cost um, the fixtures are still expensive. The process is still, you know, people are figuring out how to do it. But it would still be worth it in a place that had a big problem that it couldn't solve about nutrient pollution. So I guess I would yeah. put that out there. That that's, that's the actually kind of all that over the farm belt. You'd be amazed, yeah. Abe, at how many counties and towns are drinking bottled water because of the nutrient runoff in their municipal water supplies. I mean, it's it's just mm. shocking and staggering how few people actually yeah. have clean drinking water in this country. I mean, nobody talks about this, but it's like I've done at least a dozen programs around this now. And it's really an amazing yeah. phenomenon that is completely uncovered uh, by mainstream media, as far as I can tell. Yeah. You know, it's just, it's like, and we need ideas, innovative ideas like yours. Um, let me ask you this. what what What, what is the process to make your, I mean, what, what do you guys do? Do you concentrate it and then dry it? Is it powdered? Does it remain liquid? Because I mean, liquid is expensive to store and to move. Right. So, how, yeah. how, what are the practical aspects of this? Yeah. So there are, are a few different different options we've explored, and um, and the, the simplest one we've done does not require. Uh, well, it just requires a pasteurization step, because because um, we don't have any any control over the cleanliness of the urine. There, there are um, some, uh, there's some urine diverting toilets where it's a, it's a, a divided bowl toilet and, uh, and the urine tends to go in the front and drains down to a tank and then the back right. washes away. But, but there's always the possibility that some fecal pathogens will end up in the front part. So um, even though home gardeners typically don't do any, any pathogen removal and generally um, the World Health Organization says you don't have to if it's pure urine, we don't know that it's pure urine, so we pasteurize just in case there are any fecal pathogens in there. Sure. And, and then we do that for all of our urine. And then a lot of it, because we're actually quite close physically to some farms, we then spread it directly. We bring it to the farmers. They spread it directly with no concentration or further treatment. Um, I see. But they just pump it out liquid, from a tank on the back of a tractor yeah. or something. Yep. Wow. Put it into a tank, okay. a modified tank, kind of like a liquid, liquid manure spreader, the kind that have the trailing hoses. Um, yep. We we don't we don't broadcast spread it um, because the ammonia will evaporate and you'll lose the nitrogen and it smells bad. But we we put it down through trailing hoses or through gentle streams from a boom onto the onto the ground. And oh. uh, and if it's a if it's a tilled field, we'll incorporate it immediately. If it's a pasture that, or a hay field, then then we'll let it infiltrate naturally. Um, but because liquid is expensive to to um, store and to transport. We have been developing some concentration methods that remove over 80% of the water. We're going to see how much water we can remove. Uh, and that uses a, an innovative um, freeze-thaw process 
where it's the same, same process that you use for making Applejack, where you freeze hard cider and, um, and ice, ice crystals are, the, um, are pure water. So if those were to be removed, you'd be left with a concentrated uh, material. The same holds uh-huh. true for, um, for urine. And, um, and then, then we also are working on that, um, that pharmaceutical removal process, the activated charcoal process. And again, right. it's not something that, that we know is necessarily um, a necessary step, but we're developing it just in case, you know, in case that's the direction that the market goes or the regulations go um, in, order to, um, in order to absorb pharmaceuticals out of the urine even though it, it didn't look like they were, um, they were in, the, in the food or the, or, the, um, or the soil or the water at, um, at very high levels. It, it's, it's still something that we're, that we're developing. Um, and then there are other concentration methods like reverse osmosis that you can use uh, for making water, drinking water out of seawater. We've used right. that for making concentrate out of urine. But right now we're focusing on the freeze concentration because it's, it's one that is pretty robust. It's um, compared to reverse osmosis. It's not as finicky of a process. So we're we're looking into that now. Also, isn't reverse osmosis quite an expensive process? I've always heard that you know that's why desalination plants are fairly few and far between because it's a very expensive technology. If you're trying to make sixty or so gallons of drinking water per day, which is what a, a typical um, individual uh, uses, at least on paper, then it's expensive. But remember, right. the urine is less than is less than a half a gallon per day, actually. So, um, so oh. a couple quarts of urine per day. If you're removing that much water, it's not much power at all. It's just a different I see. scale. Interesting. So, um, do you guys have any field trials going? Who's doing? Do. Is anyone doing a, this? Yeah, yeah. We we have some field trials going now, um, looking at at the ammonia evaporation from different kinds of urine fertilizers applied in different ways because we're trying to keep as much of the ammonia as possible in the soil where it can be fertilizer, not, um, not evaporate out. And, um, and so that's one trial yeah. we're doing right now. We've also done trials on yield, growing hay. So um, we've applied urine as fertilizer and then synth- synthetic fertilizer with the same, um, same total amount of nutrients in it, and then a no-fertilizer control and verified that, that urine is an effective replacement for synthetic fertilizer. Um, Excellent. For hay. And we've grown carrots and lettuce with it as well and with similar results. Right. Fascinating. I mean, I'm going to go right outside and pee on my garden after this show. <laughs> Boy, it, it grows some pretty green vegetables. Sorry. Um, one, <laughs> one, one thing people often do is, um, is dilute the urine somewhat. So. Um, oh, really? So... Yeah, and, and it depends. The, the biggest thing it depends on is how much moisture is in the soil. Because if the soil is very moist, then the water in the soil dilutes the urine when you apply the urine to the soil. If the soil right. is dry, then, then you just have plant roots in urine, and it's too strong. It's too strong. If okay, it's dry. okay, so good to know. Good to know. Um, so I'll pee in a bucket and then add some water. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And okay. you'll see, I'm you'll liking see all, this idea. All Listen, I'm all, I'm all, I, you know, I live in the country now. Like, why not? Yeah, well, what do you, you know, do you about the urine? Alone. What doesn't it smell though? I mean, like let's let's just talk nitty-gritty for just a second and then I'm going to yeah. I'm going to ask you to just promote yourself shamelessly, but I mean, I just as a nitty-gritty concept for the home consumer listening to this show and they're thinking, "Yeah, great idea. I'm going to start peeing in a bucket or a jar or whatever it mm-hmm. is." 
like, how do you deal with the smell? Because, I mean, you know, come on, let's face it. Urine is stinky when it hangs around. Like, what yeah, do you guys do about that? Very- how do you manage that? Or how is a consumer expected to manage that? Yeah, well, there are, there are a few a few approaches, and some of them are appropriate more for like a home gardener, and some are more for a system like ours. One thing is if you if you use it immediately, then it doesn't have a chance to smell. Um, okay. Another is that if you if you put some vinegar in a container before you begin to fill it with urine, then the vinegar um, keeps the urine. It basically pickles the urine, and it keeps it from developing ammonia. The all the nitrogen stays in the urea form instead of turning into the ammonia form. So, oh. uh, so it, it, just, it just preserves it. And if you, if you add one or two cups of, of white vinegar to a five-gallon container before you begin to fill it, then it will control the odor. And the more, the more um, urine that you add, the longer it will control the odor. But if you're filling uh-huh. the container fairly quickly, then you don't need as much. People can experiment to figure out what works, what works for them. Another so, Abe, let do, me ask you this, man. Yeah. Why is it like ammonia is one of the biggest ammonia and hydrogen sulfide are the two war and methane are the three big VOCs that come off of to go back to my favorite topic, meat. Um, the, the three biggest greenhouse gases that come off of those big waste lagoons, like, say, in North Carolina, where they have like, you know, open pits for hog waste. Right. Why don't they put, you know, a few gallons of uh, vinegar into those to try to con- keep the ammonia from converting from urea to ammonia. Why is yeah. that not an option? You have to get it when it's fresh. So if the urine ah. um, has had a chance to sit around on a surface, draining down a trough in a barn or anything like that, it will be too late. Um, also, huh. also I know that, that cost is, is a huge, a huge impediment to doing anything um, different in agriculture because the margins are so small. So um, I, I, I would guess that the, the cost of vinegar um, would, would be a big deal in a, in a farm, in a farm mm. setting. For a home gardening situation, you're getting actually a personal benefit out of it. So maybe that's right. A, um, a better, okay, that's a good answer. I don't know. I mean, I'm going to ask some farmers I know. Because, I mean, like, why couldn't you, like, continuously, you know, f- as you flush – like every time they flush out beneath a pig's floor, you flush it with a vinegar solution. Like, because I mean, they pee continuously, basically. I guess. Oh, well, anyway, we don't have to discuss that now. But it's 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 an interesting <laughs> thought. I want you to do some research yeah. on that, Abe. Okay, yeah. so now, well, uh, unfortunately, we have reached the point where we have to um, end this program. But before we do so, I want you to tell people how they can learn more about uh, the Rich Earth Institute and your project and what. Uh, you know, if any information you can give home consumers uh, on that website so that they can um, start pea cycling themselves. Hmm. Thank you. Yes, well, you can come to the site. It's richearthinstitute.org. And, uh, and we have a, uh, a newsletter that comes out four times a year. And that's, that's the best way to stay connected with us. You can sign up for that mm. newsletter. And, um, and you can send us, uh, we answer all of the, all the inquiries that come in. Um, I don't know what we have there right now for home, home users, but that's something we're actually gearing up more to serve that audience. So, um, so if you're interested in this, definitely just send us an inquiry and tell us you're interested. And we, we, have, a, um, we have a document that will be coming out soon, and we'll, uh, we'll get you that copy of that so you can do it at home. That sounds great. Listen, I, I think you guys are doing God's work. I really do. I, I love, I loved this idea. The minute I, it was put up on our, you know, like one of our 
administrators was like, anybody want to touch this one? I'm like, yeah, I'm all about this. <laughs> all right, so well, um, I think you. it's just brilliant. I really do. And I wish you guys the absolute best. And I hope you'll come back in another six months or something and tell me how things are going. Because I really I do think to. this, I, like if everybody starts peace cycling who start, who listen to this program, they can tell all their friends about it. And then we'll just create an army of peace cyclers. Fantastic. It's, Let's do it. <laughs> Abe, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks to my sponsor. And thank you, Matt, for engineering. Uh, see you next week, folks. Have a great week. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.